Hi, I'm Anna Shaflarsky, and this is the Letters to the Editors podcast. This is the fourth episode of Letters to the Editors, for which I invite authors, art writers to come read their work and talk about it with me. For this episode, I've invited John Holton, an artist, publisher, and writer born in 1984 in Ireland and based in Berlin since 2008. His first novel, The Ready Maids, was published in 2011 and outlined the history of the LGB group, a collection of artists he created. The novel was accompanied by a series of exhibitions and performances in collaboration with Darko Dragicevich in Berlin, Brussels, and the Armory Show in New York. In 2015, he published the novel Oslo, Norway. In 2009, he co-founded Broken Dimanche Press, a self-declared fictional and European publishing house, which has produced over 50 titles. He programs an exhibition and reading series at Bureau BDP, the project space of the press located in Neukölln, Berlin. The story he will read is called The Future of Reading, told from the point of view of an imagined future self and is connected to his ongoing project, A Library of Potential Books. Afterwards, John and I talk about the potential end of the literary novel and fiction, and what that possibly could lead to. This is John Holton reading The Future of Reading. The Future of Reading. Reading Reality into Fiction. When I think of the future of reading, I think of the past. I think of Walter Benjamin or Peter Mandelson. I think of book covers and how we were always told, don't judge a book by its cover. But then came a time when books didn't have covers. Then came a time when books were nothing but covers. Then came a time, Malhermé's time, when everything was in a book and the world itself, that yokel of metaphysics, was its cover. The years came and went. 2008, 2016, 2024. And still, here we are, obdurant, existing evermore. It is funny to think people thought the book was over. People also thought the internet was over. It hasn't died. I mean to say, neither books nor the internet have died, because the internet is everywhere. Books are one step even further, because we read in our sleep, and your image is read after you die. Have I said this yet? The world is between the covers of a book. For my part, I have become Reba, the jovial, somewhat sad publisher of Enrique Filamatas, which is the same as saying I have become Vilamatas, for all the characters of Vilamatis are Vilamatis himself. They are the cover between him and the world. I say this thinking of how he explored the ways art could be brought to life, how he could outsmart the disorder of this mess we call life and run things around Sophie Cal and read the story he wrote, reading and living are the same here, through gestures and speech acts. But of course, that's the worst thing one can do when reading, get the author confused with their creations. Union Square Café The great age of literary publishing is over and it was declared over in the toilet of Union Square Café sometime during what the Americans call the festive season in the year 2006, uttered wordlessly by a publisher that shall go unnamed here, and besides someone I've never even met. But he had a lot to lose in the war being waged between author, agent, Bezos and the bookseller, and reader. It's over, he said as he stared at his reflection, his eyes quietly aflutter, cocaine rushing through his bloodstream, a martini, perhaps his last for a while, slowly gathering moisture along the rim of the glass, awaiting him at the bar. 
a reader of dry martinis, a good alcoholic, like Reba, and like me, I am other. The good reader must have a good memory, at least a good selective memory, and so I have cultivated my memory through abstinence and ginkgo biloba. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, no. The good reader must have a good memory, at least a good selective memory, and so I have cultivated my memory through abstinence and ginkgo biloba. This was over 20 years ago, lest we forget. And the older one gets, the harder it is to rely on memory. How old I've gotten too. A surprise, certainly. While I may not have the trouble of Reba or his inventive Vilamatis, I haven't bibed my fair share of wines, it is true. Then all those days of lethargy, how they added up to become one large what could have been. The saddest words a man could ever utter, or so said the wide Boetius. So my unpublished library remains open to interpretation. All those books I could have written, could have edited, could have read. This is what I think when I think of Benjamin and his interpreters of fate. Not only have I collected, I have read. It takes a poet to articulate this accurately. And I quote, I am unpacking my library, yes I am. No books this time though, just their idea, its progress. Each Todd out of its box, like an email out of the other, not like that at all. Or a book, its memory, all six sides of it, like an object, like some furniture, or what it furnishes us with, desire, that arrangement of flowers, that infinity pool of the computer, the desire of a library, the desire for a library, two different things. Both, however, can lead one to the cerulean literary harbours where swim the fringe forms, the book-like creatures, the bookish creators, schools of floral fish like fringe, like kelp waving in the water. Hey, watch them float past, their lucid fluid petal-like paces through the blue. Stop thinking about screens, about swiping, scanning, stroking. Think about water, its literature. In these literary port cities, with their transgressive profiles of water, so swims past these fluorescent transgressive schools. Libraries without books, literature without writing, writing without text, collecting without reading, publishing without literature, books without book-like form, lumescent, literary fringe, no dust. End quote. Future fringe. And this is where we got to. This dust-free future where reading shares the stage with the implied literary imagination of projection, forecasting, anticipation, all bred from a sense memory of what reality may be. We live the life we've written for ourselves, writing without texts, books without book-like form. I think I once tried to write this text, many years ago, in the face of the deep ill-ease we all felt then, not at the breakup of the political order or the demise of the ecological habitats we've ruined for our descendants, but for the ability to read works of art as they had been handed down to us. As one medium was replaced by another, we couldn't recognise the experience of reading the world in a shared way that gave pleasure to our moral sense of place within it. We transgressed our limits of attention and felt desperately at fault for doing so. The Map and the Territory Plato hated that the written word could take precedence over oral communication. Only in speech encounters could we be sure that our audience, our reader, could properly receive our message. But then, of course, communication itself took precedence over the written word. The map collapsed into the territory, 
we were told reality itself was fading away. The land became a text. And in that time when we joked as we FaceTime for the first time, or entered a cafe in Manhattan using Google Street View, the text was magic. It was technology. Language was an event properly told, not a medium. Books refound what they had always the potential to be. Physical spaces removed and floating heavily in the stream of ethereal information, weighed down with hallmarks, notch sticks, tatty pages and broken spines, a reassuring weight in the reader's hands. The Post Novel Was the literary novel killed by the wording in a subprime mortgage contract? The intricacies of a bank bailout in any one country that affected the lives of countless others in some other neighbouring country? Was it killed, perhaps, by the unknown desperation that forced a mother and father to uproot their children and walk, tramp, run, swim across borders to avoid trauma, danger, death? Was it killed by the image and videos of police breaking up a teenage pool party, racially profiling the attendees before brutally assaulting a terrified teenage girl in her bikini and pinning her to the ground as if she, and she alone, threatened the world order? The exact date is hard to say. And gosh, how sad I am right now, because the exact date is impossible to say. It is the date when reading became hard to do in the face of the conspiracy of attention spread over the requisite amounts of time needed to unfurl these disgustingly complex narratives. History. Long form. Lol Plato. When I was growing up during the impressionable age, books came at me haphazardly, and yet I gave them unwarranted attention and read them right the way through. And what is more, I became them for the duration of reading them. A slow becoming, mind you, character formation in the time it took me to grow the strength needed to get through the pages. I wish there were a name for this, a word to describe the process. The Decline and Fall of an Industry Standard I remember meeting Nate Forbes for the first time. He wanted to talk about the end of journalism, and we got pretty drunk while he outlined the closure of several newspapers including The Independent, where he first started out. I think it's safe to say that Forbes was somewhat obsessed about it, and I guess I told him one or two things about how publishing, as it operated in the past, was also undergoing a serious transformation, something that didn't tread it terminally, but more than that, it had the potential to survive without the publisher. Journalism, he added, without the journalist, was only ever going to be mere opinion. I always thought Nate would never write a book, but when he did, it astounded me. I read it in one sitting throughout the night. I had never even heard of Eduardo Roche Flores. Sadly, I never found out exactly why he chose to publish the book. At least not the real reason. He said it was because I knew that my profession was in decline, much like his was. Something I didn't bother to contradict, but quietly now I wish I had. He also said he admired how we called ourselves a European publishing house. But then came a burning atlas. Yeah, Forbes didn't like this, but that doesn't matter. We had been building up to this book for years. I can see why some people are upset by the idea of a non-human poetry, but I'm also surprised. The lengthy debates that surrounded English as a second language literature had already changed how people saw writing, and indeed language, and how in the new age of internationalised cultural agency was bred from a shared platform, an online platform we were all busy making every day. This brings me to think of my first meeting with George Bojic and how different he was to an author like Nate Forbes. Sad and truculent, I met him sometime just before dawn in a Paris of faded dreams. This was beyond postmodern times. 
It was non-time somehow, and the man was about to go and die. But he died knowing that the world was ending, and of course he was right. That's the strangest thing about the future of reading. Its most important aspect is our disability to read our own habitats. But that's what we get, I guess, for hubris. If countries were people, attention deficit therapy and concentrated reading groups really shouldn't surprise us. The heated conversation around reading today is no less intense than every generation has enjoyed with each new experience of mapping the territory. It's our minds that shape the reality our devices transmit to us. This is what we shouldn't forget, and books and reading books are too elegant to let anybody forget that. What was it I was reading? Publishing, like collecting books in a library, like choosing books to read, reading books to conclusion, or conclusions, is, as Roberto Calasso so assiduously put it, an art in itself, and the publisher's backlist is a form unto itself. Indeed, a literary work that is an interlinked chain which is a self-sufficient composition. This I savior, this vision of a self-sufficiency in a composition that can almost be felt physically, touched and played upon with slight variations over time or depending on the fall of the light. Jan Karen's Eastphere Quote, the states that language generate are similar to the states that objects in a space generate, real, if ephemeral, yet no less true, indeed, perhaps more true, for being so. Such states, like nation-states themselves, are not merely the consequences of speech acts, they are intrinsically performative. End quote. To end before you begin. Sitting here with John Holton, I thought maybe we'd start with the project as a whole, or to which project this text is connected to. Yeah, I guess uh, the text itself actually is very connected to a larger embodied series of objects, namely books or a potential library, uh, as the books are part of. And the idea of the potential library is basically something like, uh, I guess it would come from the idea of Udipo of literature, of potential literature, which is kind of constraint-based literature. And so uh, my idea was to basically marry these practices of publishing, uh, which I do a bit of, and writing fiction. And I kind of realised with uh, digital printing technologies and so on, it's really easy to make physical books. So basically these are books that haven't actually been totally written. It's kind of like, I guess, the equivalent of the press text or the author's bio and all the kind of stuff that goes around the book, namely on the cover, that uh, shows what the book could be or what the book is about. So they become little short stories in and of themselves. You bounce through time in, in the short story. So you're talking about past writers, you're talking about a fantasy projects with people you've never met, but you're kind of trying to describe a time of publishing right now. Yeah, I mean, the point is that I find that we're in a really difficult position uh, to think about the end of the literary novel. There's a great reluctance on the part of the people invested in it, namely novelists and publishers and editors, of course, probably particularly editors uh, in large publishing houses. So what does that mean? Is it going to be the end of civilization if people don't read Booker Prize-winning novels anymore? And so I'm kind of on the side of just trying to imagine literary art, the art of fiction, in kind of in an age where you don't have to pretend anymore that people don't read novels like they did in the 19th century, which is when the novel first kind of came into its own and perhaps has never been surpassed, or perhaps modernism 
kind of ended it for us and we're just all in denial. So the text, the text that I read is a broadside, which is kind of, I guess, a, kind of got a polemical uh, aspect to it. So on the back of this potential library project, I wanted to kind of project in the future and pretend that I'm kind of speculatively talking about this, this uh, past time. Uh, which we're really kind of just slowly moving through. And also it's kind of a pastiche of Peter Sterl's great text on the internet called Too Much World, Is the Internet Dead? And um, and so it's not that a, it's pastiche per se, it's just that that's such a very interesting way of looking at the uh, at a kind of academic potentials in a visual art kind of context of considering uh, what does actual world of the internet mean for the physical world that we move in and of course fiction has always had this kind of discrepancy and that's what postmodernism was so good at trying to confuse where people kind of walked uh, off the page and into the world and so in a way this text in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way is trying to kind of make a, um, large statements uh, from some kind of fictional future alcoholic self <laughs> you have a cast of a lot of characters who move into the story without really a lot of contextualization, and then they step out again. And I was wondering, is that also sort of a signal to the fact that the book has exploded to the point where you don't really need to explain who anybody is because it's kind of, it's on hand anyways. I mean, they could just Google them, right? Yeah, well, that's always a that's always an uh, interesting thing nowadays in that when you read a novel and you get really excited by it, or if it's using techniques of postmodernism, you want to believe so much that the characters exist that you do Google some things, so you, do, you don't. And with the potential library idea is that once the book is there, uh, even though the in contents are blank, they're blank pages, people kind of get really confused and think that the people exist because the book exists. And so in the, in the text, in the broadside, uh, the future reading, all the people that I name are effectively people I have published or, you know, in this fictional uh, world, um, they're people that I published, and so therefore, in a way, they do exist. Roberto Colasso, who I mentioned, he was very much a real publisher and uh, very much a great writer. And so, reading his collection of essays called "The Art of the Art of the Publisher," uh, that just came out in English last year, they kind of people do have bit parts, and you're like, "Who are these people?" and and they just are kind of given a little slight couple of lines, and you kind of get the impression that oh, they're a difficult writer or an alcoholic or you know, they were geniuses or whatever, and then, and then they shuffle off stage left. And so in a way, um, I guess that's how fiction works too. You get the details right and people come in and they do their thing and then you and summarize them as quickly and poetically as possible and then they prove their worth and then you discard them. So in these particular five potential books, uh, they different uh, levels of reality. Nathaniel Forbes is a fictional character who... I use sometimes in some stories George A. Borges, a fictional artist, and he uh, basically is the conceit is that he's part, very much part of the Ready Maids, my first novel, and so on and so and so forth. In the text, it says when the narrator, in his his youth or her youth, I'm assuming his youth, is uh, is reading characters, he becomes that character for a time. When you're writing. These characters, when they come in stage left or what exit stage left, is that a part of you? I mean, because a lot of the people that enter into the story are male. Yeah, it's very male text rereading us, yeah. Before I answer that question, I mean, the point that the, the narrator's saying is that he wants to have this word for that experience that 
I love having, and I guess I have it less and less the older I get, which is, you know, you read The Catcher in the Rye and your, your opinions become Holden Caulfield's opinions or whatever. And then the point is that this ability for books and novels to do that, whilst I'm saying that the great age of the novel is passing, I, I find the ability for books to do that is quite unique. I'm sure psychologists and, and linguists and cultural theorists have theories for or names for this kind of experience. But as a writer, now I mean, I think it's just something that you have to get into slowly where you adopt the persona and the, the attitude. Um, but again, it's kind of like the details of the characters. If you get the details wrong, then the whole edifice kind of collapses. It's really easy to say, I'm going to write a nihilistic, middle-aged, you know, Jamaican woman my whole novel is going to be like, I'm going to spend the next three years writing this story. I've just made that up off the top of my head. So don't, don't worry, I'm not going to write that. <laughs> Please uh, don't. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you could go ahead and decide that that's what I'm going to spend. I'm going to write a whole novel about this. But then if you don't get the details about, like, exactly how that nihilism is expressed, or if you've never been to Jamaica, then you can't really uh, maybe do as much justice. And so the, the fiction will quickly start to fray. Who has the greatest incentive to keep novels between sort of conventional covers? Do you think it's an economical question? You said editors have a lot of incentive to keep novels as books. Right. Do, do you think novelists have also that incentive, or do you think they're more flexible? Editors and publishers really are in a really tight position now because of the demands of making money. So publishing houses are really kind of you know, cutting back wherever they can and, and widely accepted that they're not being as closely read and edited as they perhaps once were. And, you know, the idea of the post-novel is just my kind of uh, framing to myself, like how to imagine the literary experience uh, going forward. It might just mean things like, you know, Borges was right, you know, um, or Alexander Kluge, I've just started to read his super short stories that are just a page long. And trying to see if, like, maybe brevity, maybe it li- lies in brevity, or maybe it lies in... in um, ultimately, I personally think it just means that there might be less books read. Uh, but the idea of different media is also really interesting because they're always being replaced, right? Like, in modern times, the, the medium that's passing out um, will give its content over first to the next medium, Um and then so, like, there's always a slight change that's get, like that's presented. The books are the same. All the different like content holders that have ex- ever existed, it's just losing its kind of predominant first place position. You mentioned a book of non-human poetry in the text mm. called A Burning Atlas. Yeah, and The Burning Atlas uh, is edited by Ida Benke, my colleague in real life, and myself. I guess we co, co-run Broken Dimanche Press, which is real, and so the potential book of the uh, of the in the potential library that was presented nearby the the text that I read. I think the publishing date that we gave it was twenty nineteen, um, and the idea of that basically is something that's already kind of in the works. There's a lot of poetry that's generated, either. Um, through AI or different uh, found poetry that exists, just generally speaking, and um, true algorithms or computer-generated systems. Uh, but Ida is also really uh, interested in uh, what she's termed power poetics, which is a literature beyond the human, which is where in the natural world or the animal world there's uh, 
something that we could call call literature, I, I guess, for a, another uh, want of another word, in the sense that we know that all f- forms of life, all forms of animal life and, and, and plant life communicate. And so where there's communication, there's sometimes a more um, poetic or literary. might seem a bit far-fetched, but in terms of poetry, it's really kind of becomes uh, fascinating to figure that out. I find it interesting because um, ever since these kinds of themes of Anthropocene and sort of like, but finally when we're, we're admitting the fact that we see ourselves at the center of our existence, then also simultaneously come out sort of topics of object-oriented ontology. We have all these sort of escapist fantasies of seeing the world through right. things that we could never see the world through, right? Mm. And that they're somehow looking back at us uh, sentient. What's the difference between the desire of a library and the desire for a library? Well, first of all, that text comes from, it's an extended extract from uh, a text by uh, Quinn Latimer. Uh, I guess has the point that, again, I guess speaking of object-oriented thought, how we kind of read desire into things, um, I would like to think that a library kind of suggests a, a kind of will of its own somehow so that some books need to be read alongside others some need to be categorized i mean the whole system of classification of books and libraries is such a on one one hand very dry um rational modern desire for human thought to be categorized and it kind of shows that kind of beautiful need we have to trample on everything but it also shows the logic to books somehow and that the family of books is always growing goes both ways that i think i kind of love the idea of Eliot that t.s Eliot that you know we're in basic communication every time you write a poem or write a novel or create any kind of literary act that you're basically in a long line of communication with the tradition that's gone before so even the most avant-garde gesture kind of becomes a retroactive kind of dialogue just to get back to the potential library, this, this, the starting point of the whole text is the, the kind of impatience to have these potential stories um, somehow, even though I'll never get around to writing all these books. I guess you kind of realise at a certain point that you're not going to achieve all the kind of grand art that you thought you might when you started out. Um, <laughs> grand art, that's what I thought. <laughs> I sound like a crazy uh, person. But no, but you know, all these novels and you're like, gosh, you know, how can I execute so many... Uh, when my writing day is, you know, at 400 words at best or 1,000 words at a good day. And and even then it's going to be subjected to a lot of inf- interruptions. So how do we write in times of political, moral and social crisis? Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, like, but if, I think people have always been writing in, in times of um, crises. What's really interesting now uh in the last six months is because of this we're kind of getting to this point where we're perfectly in one sense globalized i think thanks to the instantaneousness of the internet but at the same time um politically it seems a lot of people are voting in ways that are unexpected to most of us um apparently because they've been left behind by global globalization and so suddenly What's driving this are really uh, scary kind of agendas driven by this idea of post-truth. And then even in the last uh, 
or the first two months of 2017, uh, this, this great term, alternative facts, which is a perfectly Orwellian idea. It's basically a synonym for, for doublethink. So this is kind of the, the, the realm of where I think more than ever sophisticated uh, thought and writing and allegories are needed and operate. So that suddenly is no coincidence that like Margaret Atwood and George Orwell are suddenly in the top selling lists in, on Amazon and, and bookshops are politically engaged by giving copies away for free. I hadn't even heard of the term post-truth perhaps when I wrote this text. So now we live in this like time of alternative facts and post-truth. Identity politics in North America are really important as a set of political constraints, I guess, uh, or obligations or stimuli. Uh, the idea that, that um, the ideas put forward by identity politics or moral kind of responsibilities, and consequent of that, kind of suddenly becomes the whole thing becomes kind of either slightly impossible or slightly absurd. There's a lot of kind of demand. Sometimes I find also fiction to be somehow authentic and real, and then that's also sort of a contradiction. The novel that you will not write, for instance. I mean, you <laughs> right. might be highly criticized for. Um, appropriating a certain biography right. from your position, for instance. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think, and which I guess is a sign, which is a good thing, ultimately. You know, I read uh, Madame Bovary for the first time this Christmas. I knew more about Flaubert before I started reading it than, than I did about the fictional character of Madame Bovary. So it was really interesting to put this kind of slightly syphilis-inflicted kind of uh, grouchy old French, you know, guy in his 40s uh, who hadn't like, stopped traveling, who wasn't even really part of Paris society at, anymore at the time, to write this this kind of wonderful uh, character. So I'm I'm kind of really conflicted in all this. I really admire writers who don't give a shit about this and just go forward and write whatever, you know, character the story needs and concentrates a lot more on everything else. Uh, perhaps I don't like character-driven novels, I don't know, but... I feel like there's also sort of like an osmosis effect happening where people are starting to realize that facts are generally subjective and biased. And then also then now they're also expecting sort of fiction to also carry some truth. So there's yeah. sort of like this kind of like sharing of responsibilities. People are not really sure where the fact or the fiction is supposed to lie. So maybe the genre fiction in itself is just becoming problematic or precarious. Yeah, somehow. I mean, it's also why, like, literature with a capital L always was so disdainful of genre fiction, because it was doing, it was entertainment, whereas, like, literature was supposed to, like, somehow magically be free of story, and it was supposed to be character-driven and linguistically driven. I think it's running its course, it's kind of running out, so now people, I personally love reading a book that has a great story or somehow, but I also love reading history, I love non-fiction books, so I love... Most of my favorite novelists are kind of those that kind of almost pertain to the to forms that don't feel like fiction novels anymore. So Daniel O'Keish, uh, Yugoslavian writer, or even someone like Roberto Bolaño, of course Borges. These are all writers who kind of basically took great pleasure in kind of adopting the, the, the formal kind of masquerade of encyclopedias or uh, narrative accounts or you know, victim testimonies and, and would somehow make you believe that they're kind of historical texts and therefore a bit more objective. So. There's a disclaimer in each of the books of the Potential Library that reads, this book was printed using digital print-on-demand technology in edition of two. One copy has been sent to the Deutsche Nationalbibliothek 
and the other exists in the world. Right. I like that. <laughs> it's a nice, yeah. like, uh, I don't know, I thought that that could be interpreted in many different ways. Um, in the way that the physical object of the book is somewhere in the world, but also that somehow that the content of the book is also somewhere. Yes, it's actually a bit controversial, I guess, isn't it? It's like, why bother writing a book? <laughs> why? What's it all about? I think it's really, for me, it's really, it's actually, it's been a, a bit of a revelation that made me a bit relaxed in terms of like my own impatience with my own ideas or whatever. And, um, but also just how to kind of reconcile the possibility of books and printing technology. That was my conversation with John Holton recorded on February 17th, 2017. For past and future episodes, you can find Letters to the Editors on Facebook and SoundCloud. Letters to the Editors is supported by AKV Berlin Publishing. <laughs>